Would you remain standing for a moment longer, Pastor Van Dixhorn? I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. The passage we'll be reading this morning follows after the baptism of our Lord and the majestic announcement from heaven that Jesus is beloved by his Father. And right after the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in power, the Holy Spirit led Jesus out to the wilderness to be tempted or tested in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and... In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Please be seated. Let us come to our God in prayer. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for giving us your word, a writing that is holy and set apart from all other writings. We praise you for the library of books that bears your signature on every line. It is here that we find our own true story. It's in your book that we meet you, our creator, you, the architect and builder of all things. And hard as it is to read, It is in these holy pages that you shed light on the darkness that has overcome every fallen human heart. How grateful we are then, Father, that from the record of Genesis to the prophecy of Malachi and from the gospel of Matthew that we read this morning to the revelation of John, we find in this book first a plan and then a history of our salvation. In fact, here we find the Savior himself. We meet Abraham and Aaron Samuel and Jehoshaphat, Solomon and Jeremiah, and each of these is a gift to us, presented in your word, but each one points to something later, something better. Father, you gave the patriarchs, and yet in reading their history, we do not find in them the spouse for which we yearn. You presented the priests, but they could never offer the presence we long for or the one sacrifice we so much need. 
You provided judges, that, but, but they proved to be unjust rulers who are only a shadow of the king who must subdue us, rule over us, and protect us from all his and our enemies. Next came the gift of wise men, the greatest of whom fell into the foolishness against which he himself warned. And last came the prophets, but they could not persuade your people to turn from their sins. All of this you gave by inspiration to warn us in this life and and to direct us to faith. And yet what makes us love this book most of all this morning is that it is here that you show us Jesus, the effective prophet who called us to repentance, the teacher who astonishes us with his insight, the bringer of the kingdom and the judge of all the world. It is here that we learn of a God coming among us, a high priest offering himself for us. And so as we give you praise for the New Testament and the old today, we also ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit to ever praise you for your son until the day when we will feast with him and with every saved sinner at the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The passage that we've read this morning is one of the most puzzling in the Gospel of Matthew. Satan boldly confronts the Son of God about God's provision in verses 1 to 4 when he tempts Jesus to take uh, the, the easy way out of hardship. He then asks Jesus to try on presumption, as you can see in verses 5 to 7, where he dares Jesus to live carelessly and, and presume upon God's graciousness. This final idea is the ultimate perversion of priorities in verses 8 to 11, where Satan madly suggests that Jesus could have complete dominion in a moment if only the creator would bow to the creature. These strange otherworldly confrontations between God the Son and Satan, a corrupt angel, raise challenging questions that we will not all be able to address this morning. Indeed, one of the benefits of being a visiting preacher is that you can preach on extremely challenging passages and then leave the hardest questions for your pastor. (laughs) Nonetheless, there's so much to learn from this account. In fact, in reading about the, the temptation of God's son, Jesus, there's almost no limit to the number of lessons we are to learn. I don't want to say this morning that there's a moral to the story. There, there's a thousand morals to this history. Bishop J.C. Ryle, if I can quote an Anglican bishop in a Presbyterian church, uh, it mentions some of those lessons. First, he says, what a real and mighty enemy we have in the devil. He's not afraid to assault even the Lord Jesus himself. People speak about devils and and demons and Satan himself lightly today. He's presented as a cartoon character. In truth, he is a deadly enemy and we must see him for who he is. And that's because in the second place, if Satan is this bold with Christ, he will surely be even more bold with Christians. Are you ever tempted to entertain unloving thoughts about people around you? Do you have shameful memories that keep coming back? Are are there dark desires that discourage you? Well, there's a reason for that kind of thing. We have an enemy, and he's often tempting us to sin or trying to convince us that we can't avoid sin. He's spreading lies 
And we need to know in advance how to deal with him. J.C. Ryle says there's no enemy worse than an enemy who is never seen and yet never dies. He adds, let us remember every day that if we would be saved, we must not only crucify the flesh and overcome the world, but also resist the devil. Third, and this point is so obvious that none of you missed it, but so important that I need to say it anyway, the whole purpose of Satan's temptation is to get us to sin against God. This business of temptation is very personal for Satan. He hates God. He wants all things to work for for bad for those who love God. And so he's always trying to get us to sin against our creator and our redeemer, He tempts us to deny sin, to ignore sin, to excuse sin, to try and manage our sin. But above all else, he simply wants us to commit sin. And this is what makes sin so serious. This is why the angels of hell rejoice when we argue in our kitchens, when we are selfish driving our cars, when we're careless about what we see on our screens or computers, or as we're thoughtless about our friendships. It's because Satan wants us to sin that we need to band together as Christian people, pray for each other, care for each other, and encourage each other that we will not be led into temptation. Fourth, we should remember in our temptations that the one in whom we trust and in whose name we pray knows what it's like to be tempted. The writer to the Hebrews may be reflecting on Matthew chapter 4 when he reminds us that Jesus was tempted in all things like we are. Jesus can identify with us in this way. He understands us. We can pour out our heart to him. There's no need to hide anything from him. We can confess our deepest struggles. Jesus has fought against temptation. He knows what we need. Now, I wish every one of you uh, already owned and read J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels. Wonderful, wonderful volumes. Uh, maybe you do. Uh, if, if, I, if I knew for sure you did, I could just say volume one, page 27, and you'd say, oh, yes, that is a good quote. Uh, <laughs> but, but as it happens, I, since I don't have that confidence, let, 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 me, let me read Ryle yet again. Are they ever tempted by Satan? Let's personalize this. Are we ever tempted by Satan to distrust God's care and goodness? So was Jesus. Are we ever tempted to presume on God's mercy and run into danger without warrant? So also was Jesus. Are we ever tempted to commit one great private sin for the sake of some great seeming advantage? So also was Jesus. Are we ever tempted to listen to some misapplication of Scripture as an excuse for doing something wrong? So also is Jesus. He is just the Savior that tempted people require. Fifth, we should remember from this passage that there's a difference from being tempted and falling into temptation. Difference between being tempted and falling for it. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. Indeed, he could not sin. That, that, he, that he did not sin is seen everywhere and is stated in, the, Hebrew, in, the, in the, writer, uh, the writings to the Hebrews. That he could not sin, we know, because he was not only a man, but also the God-man. And God cannot sin. His, his struggle against temptation not only did succeed, it had to succeed. Now, a lot more can be said on this topic. 
And here's an excellent example of the kind of question you can ask your pastor later. But let me say here and now that there's a comfort for us in this distinction between being tempted and falling into temptation, a comfort that Satan would like to withhold from us. Let me try and illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, There was a season when I traveled through Washington, D.C.'s Union Station each week, and I learned after my first experience there that that there's a hallway, the shortest way to my train, filled with deeply inappropriate images that Satan could use to tempt me to sin. And so I had to choose another route through the station uh, to my to my regular platform. Again, when I walked up a set of stairs each week in New York's Penn Station, I learned after my first unfortunate time up the stairs that there's a moment when I needed to look left and not look right uh, in order to avoid a magazine rack uh, sitting near the top of the stairs. Now, each time I, I, I took one route rather than a, another route, each time I, I, I looked left instead of right, that was a small victory. That was the Holy Spirit helping me to overcome an identifiable temptation. Praise God, sometimes we do follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit and we don't fall into temptation. Now, here's my point. Satan is horribly clever and he not only tempts us, But he tries to make us feel guilty simply because we know there's a temptation there and we feel its power. You know, I hear something going on in my head. Why are these sights even a problem for you? I mean, a better Christian wouldn't even worry about it. It wouldn't even be be on the radar. Wouldn't a stronger Christian not be bothered? The very fact that you have to kind of plan this out and and think think this, this just shows you're already a loser. You're already a weak Christian and a pretty junky minister at that. You see, he makes us feel like we've already failed just because we face the temptation. But you see, the life of our Lord, Matthew chapter 4, reminds us that there has to be a distinction and an important one between being tempted and falling to temptation. Uh, Like our Lord and with his assistance, we sometimes do what he always did. We don't always fall to temptation. And so Satan would have us live in his shadow. Let us remember this distinction. And as the Lord helps us, let us bask in our Father's pleasure. Well, a few moments ago, I mentioned it's not enough to say there's a moral to the story because there's just so many lessons for us to learn. It's also not enough to say there's a moral to the story because there is an important history, an important backdrop to Matthew chapter 4 that we need to stand back and appreciate. And understand, because as God designed it, this mysterious moment in redemptive history remains one of the most important connections between the New Testament and the Old One, one of the most important bridging passages. Let me try to explain. If you know the first gospel well, you'll remember that the infant Jesus was rushed to Egypt for a time to escape the clutches of King Herod. Matthew also explains back in chapter 2 that this was a fulfillment of a prophecy in Hosea. Just as God's chosen son Israel came up out of Egypt, so too God's son Jesus would come up out of Egypt. Now Jesus coming up out of Egypt in Matthew chapter 2 sets the stage for Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. 
Not only is Jesus like Israel in going down to and coming up out of, out of Egypt, he's also like Israel in that he was tempted in the wilderness. You see, Jesus was, was reliving the, the events, the substance of Israel's life in his own life, in a kind of compressed form. Some years ago, uh, some time ago, I should say, uh, we had a couple uh, coming to our house, and as they were visiting different people, they were collecting socks uh, to send to the Ukraine. And their car was so full of socks that they had run out of space. Uh, and so my wife gave them these vacuum bags where you sort of put stuff into it, and then you hook up your vacuum cleaner, and it sucks all the air out. And, and the stuff's all there, but it gets highly compressed. I admit this is not a great analogy. Please don't criticize me afterwards for this. But, but in some way similar, the, the, the key events of the life of Israel were being sort of compressed down, compacted into the life of our Lord. And if you know the Old Testament well, and you know what is written, then you'll spot these, these connections, these parallel lines running between the Old Testament and the New. You'll see the compacted history of Israel in Christ's life. Israel was in the wilderness. Jesus was in the wilderness. They spent 40 years there. Jesus spent 40 days there. They were tempted by hunger, and we can be sure that Jesus was was confronted by an even more intense hunger. You see, these wilderness scenes belong together, don't they? Piecing these Old Testament and, and, and New Testament histories together is a bit like finding an old painting in your attic and realizing that it's supposed to be a pair for the one that's hanging in your dining room. They, they go together. And yet when you put the two scenes beside each other, you begin to see not just the similarities, but also the ways in which they're different. The Israelites wanted God to give them food in the rocky desert. They almost demanded a miracle. Jesus was asked to turn stones into bread, but he refused. Jesus would face hunger like the Israelites but not complain, not demand a miracle, not even work a miracle in his own power. You see, Israel was tested and they failed. Sometimes they complained. Sometimes they they did as they pleased and assumed that God would help them anyway. Sometimes they demanded more now because they they felt they, they, they cared more about the immediate concerns of this world than they cared about the promises of what was to come. But here Jesus is tested and he resists. He's tempted as Israel was, yet without sin, without complaint, without compromise. But if you know your Bible well, you'll know that epic temptations come in sets of three, not pairs of two. There's still yet another picture, if you will, at the very back of the attic. Only when we set that third picture with the other two have we properly assembled the work of the master. What makes this third frame fit with the other ones is not similarity of scene, it's continuity in the characters. You may have noticed that in the wilderness temptation of Jesus, the second Adam, Satan was in the foreground. In the wilderness temptation of Israel, we know he's there, but we don't see him at all. But there's another temptation to consider, and it's the first in human history. The scene is different, but Satan is there front and center, as is the first Adam and his wife. In in a garden, the first Adam and his wife were, were, were confronted by a temptation 
regarding provision. Encouraged that, to, to think that God was not taking as good a care of them as he could, seeing that he was withholding from them something so appetizing. In that temptation, in that temptation, they were encouraged by Satan to presumption, assuming that they could do the opposite of what God commanded and still come out okay in the end. Ultimately, they gave themselves to perversion. I, I, I don't think that's too strong of a word. Maybe it's not even strong enough. It, 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 they listened to the truth that God had spoken, being mangled into a lie, and then chose to follow a creature rather than the creator. They put Satan's word before God's, and they made themselves the real authorities in their lives as they chose to go their own way. And when Adam, whom one of the gospel writers calls God's son, chose to twist the will of his father in heaven, he sinned, and the world plunged into sin with him. Now, I I mention it's not enough to simply point out that the lessons we need to learn from Matthew, because there's this this connection, this, this bigger history that we need to see in Matthew. But the most important reason why we need to move beyond the moral of the story is that there's a gospel to this story, to this history. And reading about the testing of God's son Jesus, and then reflecting back on the testing of God's son Israel, and, and God's son Adam, there, there's a big message There's something that we must not miss this morning. And so let's take these different temptations in their historic order briefly. Adam was a representative man. And when our first parents failed their test, a kind of of virus was unleashed on the world that no one could escape. We're all left corrupted. And left to ourselves, we all crash. After that, we, we see this failure repeated. Israel replicates Adam's failures. And eventually, as Adam was exiled from the garden, so they were wave after wave exiled from the land of Israel and Judah. It seemed like testing, failure, exile is the only pattern we'll see in the Bible until in the opening pages of the New Testament, we see another wilderness, another appearance of Satan. Another test ordered by God. And there where every mere mortal has failed, we see one who succeeds. And of course, that's just the beginning. My, my Bible uh, has the, uh, the heading, The Temptation of Jesus. As if this were the only time that Satan assailed our Lord. But, but uh, unlike the temptation of Adam, and very much like the temptation of Israel in the wilderness, for most of the rest of Christ's life, Satan recedes into the background, but we know he's there. We see the devil's handiwork everywhere. The whole of Christ's life is characterized by conflict and adversity and false accusation and rejection. Each one of these things a signature of Satan himself. And what are we to learn from this? Well, at the very least, Christians are to see in Christ's resistance to Satan, an example for ourselves. As one writer puts it, Christians must not go for a temporal kingdom, which Jesus refused. They must not grab fulfillment now, which Jesus declined. They must not compromise with Satan, which Jesus rejected. 
They are to use the spirit's sword in the ongoing battle against the forces of evil. Surely we ought to learn this from that passage, shouldn't we? But even more than seeing Jesus as an example, we must see here how Jesus is our substitute. All that he did, he did in our place and for our sakes. He came to face temptation as the last Adam. He came as a new representative who lived and obeyed and resisted temptation where we often have not. As our substitute, he was earning for us a righteousness that we could never quite get for ourselves. He fought compromise so that his steadfastness could be credited to us when we lack courage. He resisted easy prestige and privilege so that his kingdom perspective can be, could be imputed to us when we are worldly and short-sighted. He turned to God for his provision so that his confidence could be ascribed to us when we worry and are anxious. He carefully avoided presuming on his father's kindness so that his wisdom, his holiness could be counted ours when we're foolish and careless. He despised the perverted twisting of priorities that puts satanic suggestion at the same level as divine revelation. He resisted Satan so that all, all who trust in Christ will be completely and permanently forgiven for every time that we have given into the world and the flesh and, yes, the devil. He was supplying in all of these actions the righteousness that comes to justified sinners who are united to Christ by faith. There's good news, good news for Christians in in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and Jesus resisting Satan. As I look back with you over these 11 verses, it, it seems like supernatural events are the most notable features of the chapter. I mean, where else do we, do we encounter Satan at one end of a passage and angels at the other? Where else do, 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 does the most sinful of all creatures guide the, the sinless creator God from place to place? Where else do we read about a, a mountain where Jesus can see the whole world or, or a conversation on some, some protrusion or pinnacle of the temple where priests and people are milling about underneath, completely unaware of the drama going on overhead? And yet, in spite of all those things, maybe the most remarkable part of this passage is the very thing that appears the most natural, Jesus quoting the Bible. What could be more normal than that, right? Uh, But when you think about it, isn't it astonishing that after every assault of the devil, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy? That's amazing because as, as Matthew Henry's commentary notes, Jesus himself is the eternal word. And, and could have produced the mind of God without recourse, without, without referring to the writings of Moses. And yet Christ wanted us to learn something, to see something that we might not see ourselves. Who better than Jesus to not only know the scripture, but to know its power and its authority? Who better than the incarnate word of God to commend the written word of God? We sometimes don't take the Bible seriously enough. But you see, it was enough for Jesus that it is written. It's the only argument that he needed. Is there something more profound 
something more clever that we need in our fight against temptation. Christianity's culture despisers think that it's absurd for us to be guided by this old book. But you see, it was an old book already when Jesus was on earth, when he was in the wilderness. And yet he quoted the Bible as, as, as if the scriptures properly applied are a sufficient guide for every twist and turn in the most difficult situations of life. I add properly applied because Satan can quote the Bible too. But you see, he twists what is written. He takes a book that comes from God and tries to use it against God. So scripture needs to be understood well, studied well, used well. Now we have many reasons, don't we? To hold to the scriptures tightly. Classic confessions of the Christian church remind us that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by by thoughtful reasoning may be deduced from scripture. And, And we can't find that anywhere else. The way of salvation is so so clearly taught in one or another place in Scripture that not only the learned but the unlearned can understand. It's a book that speaks without error and with authority and with great clarity, and we can trust it infallibly. But of course, and much more importantly, that's how the Bible talks about itself. The psalmist says once and again that God's word is a light. The book of Proverbs teaches us that the word of God is intended to give us certainty. The epistle to the Romans tells us that the Bible is intended for our comfort. 2 Timothy 3 tells us the Bible is good for everything. Throughout the scripture, we're given any number of reasons why we need to hold it dear and to trust it fully. But I want you to see this morning that in Matthew chapter 4, we are especially directed to the Bible as an aid in the fight against temptations to sin. One of the old Puritans once wrote that only scripture is strong enough to support and bear us up in the sad hours of temptation. One of the Protestant reformers once said, Christ uses scripture as his shield. Those who voluntarily throw away that armor deserve to be strangled by Satan into whose hands they give themselves up unarmed. That's John Calvin. Uh, I mentioned that we need to know how to deal with the devil. The way we deal with the temptations and the tempter is to know scripture and to know, like Jesus, how to apply it. It's because the Bible is so effective that Satan wants us to read it very little or to read it very quickly and to trust in the Bible even less. He wants us to be uncomfortable with the Bible. He wants us to airbrush the influence of the scriptures out of our lives. He reminds us time and again how the Bible is offensive to our neighbors, irrelevant to our unbelieving friends. He wants us to set it aside because he knows that Bible reading, that praying over the Bible, and that listening to good biblical preaching is the life-giving power of God and the most effective weapon in the Spirit's arsenal. And the most important thing, that the Bible has to say to us in the fight against temptation is that Jesus Christ has already dealt Satan the death blow. Our enemy wants us to feel hopeless about our sin. Do you feel hopeless 
about your sin? Sometimes we do. And the scriptures announce that we need not feel hopeless. Jesus has taken the penalty of our sin. Jesus has broken the back of our, of our opponent. He's destroyed sin's final power. There was a time in World War II when the uh, supply chain for the German army was so stretched, when they were fighting on so many fronts, and when the allies with American reinforcements were, were, were coming back on so many fronts, victorious, that it was basically a sure thing that the Allies would win the war. I mean, historians argue whether it's the Battle of Leningrad, is it 1640, uh, 1942, you know, they, they argue about when it is, but there came a point when the war would go on, but the victory was secure. Well, if that's mostly true for World War II, Matthew chapter 4 is telling us it's entirely true for the Christian life. I said that in order to understand Matthew 4, It's not enough to have one picture. We need to have three pictures in view. But even as I think aloud with you now about Christ's victory, all kinds of other sights come to mind. We've spent a half hour looking at, at, at one wall in the gallery, as it were. But as you step back and look around, there are other scenes that the Holy Spirit has assembled in a, in a, a special exhibit of saving revelation. Look with me at the end of Christ's ministry. There we see another temptation. Scripture presents before our eyes a scene from the Garden of Gethsemane with our Savior dreading the cup of wrath which he was about to drink down to its dregs. We see him hanging again, on, hanging on his cross in a spiritual wilderness of sorts. Christ more alone than ever before. And the crowds are around him, testing him trying him. But thankfully, not even that is the full panorama. For after a dark portrait of a tomb, we see a scene of dazzling glory, of angels who blinded the guards of a grave that was suddenly empty. And there's more. There's a long scene that begins at, at Pentecost and stretches the full length of the gallery. And there, if you, if you look closely, you see the apostles and the preachers. You see the praying men and, and women and children of the, of the Middle Ages. You see the great reformers and the Puritans. And if you look closely, you even see insignificant people like you and me, all of us, called to trust in this Savior. All of us, called to resist temptation. All of us called to be part of a missionary society that that shows the world God's kingdom and God's glory. In short, all of us called to live by what is written. And at the end, there's a final scene. There we see Satan bound and banished, never to tempt again. There we see the Son of God with angels around him and the world falling down before him. There we see the church of Christ brought into glory. And there we glimpse the elect from every nation. Joining with those whose rest is one. Finally doing to perfection what we've always only partly done. There we will worship the Lord our God. And him only will we serve. It's a glorious sight. It's almost too good to be true. So how do we know that it is? Because it is written. Let us pray. Our Father, 
We ask this morning that you would equip us to fight temptation by trusting our Savior, who has overcome all. Teach us to know the scriptures, to use wisely what is written for our defense and for the glory of your name and kingdom. We ask this and then we're emboldened to ask even more. In spite of our weakness and the weakness of others whom we love, we pray that your word would continue to increase, that the number of disciples would be multiplied greatly everywhere, and that many who have struggles like our own would become obedient to the faith. We pray you would fill us with your grace and power so that no one would be able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which we speak, relying on your word. And in all of this, we ask with all of our hearts that your name would be lifted high above us as we ourselves recede into the crowd of your worshipers. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.